And so we're back in the book of Romans. Is this series um, helpful for you? It's a bit meaty, isn't it? Uh, it's rather deep. Um, some would, might, may say not as, not as practical. I, I think it's the most practical book that we have the pleasure of, uh, of reading together. Uh, if you have your Bible this week, you can open to Romans chapter 3. If not, we would encourage you to bring your Bible. Um, but if you don't have it, we'll have it on the screen for you. Uh, Paul in Romans has been making a case uh, for why the gospel why the good news of Jesus? Why, why is that needed? He showed us in Romans 1 that all of mankind is sinful, that we all rebel. Um, by the way, before I get into rebellion and sin, <laughs> let me just acknowledge somebody that I'm really proud of. Uh, Marshall Lehman, until uh, the, the game prior, I believe, to the state championship game, was the defensive coordinator, the main brain behind a Stratford defensive squad that allowed zero points scored against it until that uh, moment in the season, which broke state records and was remarkable. And I'm just glad he's a part of us. I'm proud of him. He's on the back row there. The uh, relatively little little hair uh, guy uh, on his head there. Way best, Marshall. Congratulate Marshall on an amazing season. State runner-up with his Stratford Tigers. Fantastic. All right, back to sin and rebellion, Marshall. Okay. So Paul has, has basically said in chapter 1, we're all sinful, we're all rebels. In chapter 2, we saw uh, that he would anticipate some ob objections among the church-attending types, people who would say, yeah, those, those non-believers, those secularists, those pagans of chapter 1, oh boy, they're messed up, but not us. Well, Paul would spend the entirety of chapter 2 dealing with those prideful folks, uh, those people that think they're better than, than anybody else. Um, he would say, you're messed up too, and let me show you why. Let me show you how. You may have been raised in the church. You may be Bible-toting, but let me show you how you're in error. And now a lot of people um, get confused because James uses the word religion in a very positive light. He says, pure and faultless religion is this, taking care of orphans and widows in their time of need. In, in the book of Romans, we see the Apostle Paul talking about religion in a very uh, negative light. How could that be? How could it be that a mature believer, a spiritual person, rails on religion? Why, why is this? Why is, is he, after having religious training and, and devoting his life to religion, why is he hating? Why is he hating on religion? And this is why. And this is critical to our understanding of the book of Romans. Even more so the, the Christian faith in general. Paul draws a very sharp distinction between religion and true Christianity. Very sharp. Allow me to introduce you uh, to a chart. You should have received one of these uh, at your seat. Uh, we put roughly one per family. Al, if you don't have one, lift your hand. Uh, there should be one near you. Does anybody not have one? I have more copies right here. Everybody have something to look at? 
Okay, I'm not going to go through these uh, one by one, but I do want to highlight the first few because I want you to read this at home, and I hope that in reading a few, I might prompt your interest in reading the many. Religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. The gospel says, I am accepted by God, therefore I obey. Do you understand the difference? Sharp distinction, huh? This is, by the way, from Tim Keller of uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. He categorized the two in this way. Motivation is based on fear and insecurity in religion. I do this because God might smite me, or I do this because I'm worried about what my parents might think of me. Motivation in terms of the gospel is based on great joy. I'm delighted to serve God. I'm passionate to be his child. I want to follow him. Religion. I obey God in order to get things from God. The gospel says I obey God to get God. God is my end game. God is not a a means to an end. He's the end to delight in him, to resemble him. Religion says when circumstances in my life go wrong, I'm angry at God or myself since I believe, like Job's friends, that's a biblical character, that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. That's what religion says. The gospel says when I'm criticized, I struggle, but it is not critical for me to think of myself as a, quote, good person. My identity is not built on my record or on my performance, but on God's love for me in Christ, and therefore I can take criticism. How many of you know it's a lot easier to take criticism if we believe that we're fallen? if we believe that we fall short of the glory of God. So, in a few of these, and I'll let you read the more lengthy ones at home, I just want you to understand the tension in where Paul's going with his, with his thoughts. Don't be confused between religion and between the gospel. And I would also say that if you're a YouTuber late at night, and you enjoy watching YouTube uh, from your mobile device or on your computer, laptop, or whatever, YouTube Tim Keller, because he is just such a fascinating pastor and and what we would call an apologist, someone who defends the gospel um, against uh, the arguments of very, very bright people. Google at their headquarters has had him in on a number of occasions. You can see the, the presentations he's made to their whole team in Silicon Valley, and I, I just encourage you to familiarize yourself with him. He has his head screwed on straight, and I, I believe he's a name that I can feel very confident in recommending to you. So again, the gospel, the good news, is that a crucified Savior died for us and rose again, the only person to have ever done it without help, and that message is the power of God for salvation. Religion, a man-made substitute for the gospel. Religion does not help with sinfulness. Religion makes sinfulness worse. This is what Paul has shared thus far. That's the review in whole. So now, as we look to chapter 3, Paul hears in his head yet another objection. 
raised by his Jewish readers, religious folks. Something along the lines of, Dad, I know we can't use our tablet throughout the week, but technically, Dad, uh, the weekend begins on Friday, not Saturday. Look at all the people doing weekendy things on Friday, Dad. And as parents, we have to anticipate objections to our rules. Do we or do we not? We've got to see them coming. We've got to have an answer, a response for them. So Paul conducts this, this mock argument. He pictures the Jews standing there with their Hebrew Bibles saying, Wait a minute! You're saying that all this is worthless. Wasn't this book written by God himself? And, and how can't this book be valuable to us? This is the Pentateuch. This is the, the authorship of Moses. This, are you saying these stories are of no value? And Paul pictures them having these thoughts inside their head. So this is where he begins uh, today. Or here's how we might say it today. Whoa, wait a minute, Zach. Are you saying that growing up in church is of no value at all? Are you saying having a Bible is of, is of no value, that Christian school is of no value? Well, let's take it directly from the Apostle Paul's lips, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3. Then what advantage has the Jew? I told you throughout the book of Romans, anytime we see Jew, we can substitute it for our purposes with church-attending Christian. Okay, so what advantage has the church attending Christian or what is the value of, I told you last week that for our intents and purposes, we can substitute in something like a baptism for a circumcision. Or what is the value of Christian baptism, but in every way, or I should say much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the very promises or oracles of God. In other words, God himself inspired the stories of the Old Testament word for word. Of course, Paul says, they're valuable. But their purpose, and this is key, the purpose was to point Israelites to their need for Jesus Christ, not to equip them with some kind of strategy or technique that would, in their minds, remove them from their need for Jesus Christ. All the things that God gave in the Old Testament, the stories, the rituals, um, they are all designed not to give you something to master so that you can say, Aha! I did it. I succeeded. I'm worthy. But rather, it would bring you to the place, the Old Testament, to where you would cry out, I have no hope of ever being restored to my creator apart from his gift of grace. That is why the Old Testament is, that is what the rituals meant. Not to beef us up with pride from our accomplishments, but to drive us to our knees in humility. Verse 3, but what if some church-attending Christians were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Paul imagines a Jewish person, a religious person saying, if the law was supposed to lead us to, to Jesus, Paul, hasn't God failed in leading us to Jesus through the law? As you know, Paul, not many Jews obey the gospel or believe the gospel. And this is what Paul says next. Verse 4, by no means. 
By no means does people's faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God. By no means. Let God be true, though every person were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? In other words, even though Israel, in large part, God's people failed to believe, God still kept his promise to bring salvation. In fact, God took the Jewish people's unbelief and used that as a catalyst through, in large part, the Apostle Paul's ministry to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to the non-believing, to the pagan. And so God turned the Jewish people's rejection of him into an opportunity to reach people that have never even heard of him. Well then, they say in verse 5, if Israel's rebellion led to Gentile salvation then, and and that was all a, a part of God's initial plan, how can God still be mad at the Jews? I mean, if God is sovereign, he's aligning the stars so the Jews reject him so the Gentiles might have him. How can God still be mad at the Israelites? Didn't they just play their part in this big game of God? And he anticipates that question in verse 5, and he answers in verse 6, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? as some people slanderously charge us with saying. Their condemnation is just. Paul's saying, if it's true that the gospel was given to pagan people, to more people, to all people, because the Jews would reject him, and if it's true that you're thinking in your mind, then why don't we just misbehave so that other people can have the goodness of God? He's saying that's faulty logic. That's a stupid idea. Of course you're also responsible for your own choices. Of course you Jews are also responsible for your actions. And so then Paul ends this little imaginary Q&A with religious people, and then he concludes this. What then? Are we Jews, those who have the Bible, those church-attending Christians, are we any better off? Are we any better off in our our, our hearts than, than pagan sinners? And he says, not at all. <laughs> For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And as it is written, and now what Paul's going to do is Paul's going to work through a string of quotes from the Old Testament that I'm going to kind of take one by one for the remainder of our time together. And he's trying, what he's trying to do is he's trying to show his listener that what he's saying is not really new information. That the gospel has been around all along, all through the Old Testament. So he begins with this one. None is righteous, no, not one. Taken from the Old Testament. Sin, he's saying, 
has ruined our legal standing before God. When everything is known before God, this is what Paul's communicating, when everything hits the fan at the end of time and the secrets of human hearts are exposed, none of us is going to be in a good place. That includes the Pope. That includes your pious grandmother. That includes Billy Graham. That includes Mother Teresa. When secrets are exposed, it's not going to be a good day for anybody. Just think about it for a minute. How would you like to have an iPad-sized monitor strapped around your head that revealed to anybody in the supermarket line or in the line at the bank or at your homeschool co-op or when you go to, to pick up the kids from daycare that reveals every one of your thoughts. Just right here on the side of your head. And Paul's making the point, that's what's going to happen Verse 11, no one understands, he says. That's a quote from the Old Testament. Sin has corrupted our minds, he's saying. Our ability to perceive God is warped. So much of, of what we see in life, we talked about this in Romans 1, is based on our biases. But by our, our, our shortcomings. Um, so what we believe is determined by what we want to believe. We talked about the suppression of the truth in Romans 1. Verse 11b, no one seeks God even. At this point, we're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, Paul, I have, I have a devotional life. Thank you very much. I put on the coffee in the mornings and add a little creamer, and I sit there, and I, and I study um, a proverb uh, chapter, and I spend time in prayer with the Lord, and I lift up my kids and my pastor and my neighbors, and I spend time. What do you mean no one seeks God? This doesn't make sense. I, I know people uh, who aren't even Christians and don't go to church and they're sincerely searching for truth. And what about people from other religions? Paul and, and I know some very sincere Muslims who are really passionate about knowing God. And Paul isn't saying that people aren't passionate about spiritual things or that nobody wants to connect to the supernatural. It's not what he's saying. He's saying no one prompted by their own ability and their own motivation wants to find God. At least not the true version of him. People may seek God, in other words, to get blessings from God. Or they may seek some reshaped version of God that supports their preconceived biases, that conforms to their agenda, that aligns with their prejudices or their thoughts about the poor or, or, or the rich or the black or the white. Paul's saying, apart from God's grace, we do not naturally seek God. We run from him. We reject him. 
And what that means is that anybody who's here at the mill this morning and who is truly seeking God, you do so not because you've prompted yourself to do so, but because God has first sought you. That's why you're here. That's why you're pursuing him. Because he's pursued you first. Jesus, or rather the scriptures say of Jesus, nobody comes to the Father but through the Son. Jesus, and, and Jesus said himself, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him to me. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 says, no one can recognize that Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. So Paul's saying, don't imagine that you're even capable of seeking God without God. The ability to seek God is a gift by God. Verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. This is from Isaiah 53 and, and Psalm 53. This is the, the essence of sin. We went our own way. We preferred our way to God's. There's one central lie, as you know, that has propelled our rebellion since Adam and Eve. It lives in the heart of every teenager, every child, every college student, every adult, every boomer. Uh, it's, it's this thought that I think my way is better than whose way? Than God's. That is sin, right? I'm smarter than, than God. Uh, I'm more efficient than God. My timing's better than God's. We never say these things, but in our hearts at times is that attitude. It doesn't matter if you're a businessman or an empty nester or, or uh, a toddler or an educator. Paul says next, this. It gets more depressing, I'm telling you. No one does good. Not even one. And again, if your re reaction is like mine, this has to be an overstatement. This has to be hyperbole. What do you mean, Paul? Nobody does good. I mean, I just saw Nate Lang last night, who's Chris's brother, I know Nate, receiving toys for tots. And he looked cold. And his ears were red. And I said, Nate, I got a hat in my car at Christmas in the park. If you want me to run grab it, I'll be happy to. And your ears don't have to be cold. And he said to me, he said to me, I can't do that because it's not a part of the military uniform. What a sacrificial man standing out there in the cold. I'm convinced that guy, Nate uh, would, did I say Nate Heeg? I said Nate Lane, right? Okay, all of a sudden Nate Heeg popped in my mind. Nate, on the other hand, no, I'm just teasing. Um, but Nate uh, uh, Lang, I, I'm convinced he would fall in a grenade for anybody in this room. I just know that's his heart. I know that's who the man is. And, and, and how can, what do you mean nobody does good, Apostle Paul? How is that even possible? Yes, those are good things. And yes, every one of you does, I'm sure, wonderful things at times. But, hear me out. 
First, the Bible considers as a good deed only deeds in which both the form or the act and the motivation are pure. That reduces our number of good deeds at the surface to slum to none. The motivation has to be right. Early in our marriage, Shan and I were so broke that it was my idea. I pushed this. We drove to the Wisconsin Dells to listen to a timeshare spiel because I wanted to win a $50 prepaid Visa debit card or credit card or whatever they're called. We drove all the way. The gas costs us nearly as much as the, the credit card that we receive from these people. And we sat in the Dells and listened on Christmas Mountain for three hours to some guy who sounded like, bless his heart, 20-something, who he'd been trained last week. And we knew going in, we had committed, we're not going to buy a timeshare. We're here for the gift card. Do you understand? Say yes, honey. Yes, I understand. This is why we're here. We're here to get the gift card, not to buy the timeshare. And we listened to his speech, and it was, are you comfortable today, Mr. Burris? And do you prefer white chocolate or dark chocolate, Mrs. Burris? And now let me tell you about all these various packages. And, and, and sir, but we have to go. It's, it's our time. We promised we wouldn't be here more than three hours. If we could just get our gift card, we'd like to be on the road. But sir, but sir, please. And this is what he ended up saying after us getting a little animated. He ended up saying, if you could please hang on for another 20 minutes, I may not lose my job. I pitied this poor guy. I mean, what a loser company that would put somebody in that position. I may not lose my job if you'll just, please, sir, stick around. How many of you know their motive wasn't to bless us with an amazing deal? It may have sounded good. Their motive was to take our cash. Their motive wasn't to gift us something special without anything in return. And so this is how we need to think about our good deeds. A deed is only good in God's eyes if it is motivated purely by love for God or purely by love for others with no self-interest at all. That in and of itself is reductionist. It limits the amount of our true good deeds drastically. Some of you do good deeds that extend outside of that category. And I would say that another reason, a second reason is that our good deeds aren't good. And this is what leads to them all being essentially not good. Another reason is that apart from faith, even our biggest good deeds are by contrast to our biggest bad deeds nothing notable let me put it in these words say you have a guy who is going to commit adultery in a hotel and meet somebody that he's taken an interest in and he walks in and on his way up to the room he generously tips the bellhop 
scholars have made the point that a good deed in context of bad deeds isn't really a good deed. In light of the context, it's hard to see something like tipping a bellhop as really good. What if our rebellion to God was the same way in his sight? Paul's point is, in light of cosmic treason, rebellion against our creator, wanting to be our own God rather than have him as God, it's hard to even call our goodness good. There's no one good, not even one. You say, yeah, but Oprah told me, Pastor, I'm precious and special. She said it. Yes, you are. You are actually. And that's part of this whole paradox of faith. God says you are a beautiful person, made in his image, but you have been also ruined by what? By sin. And you need a savior outside of yourself. Blaise Pascal said, what a contradiction man is. On the one hand, judge of all things. And on the other hand, a stupid earthworm. (laughs) A depository of truth and a heap of error. (laughs) The glory and refuse of the universe. I don't know about you, I've never found that quote on a Hallmark card at Christmas time. Right? Just won't see that. Verse 13, we're almost done. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, which is a snake, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Paul says the place our corruption really reveals itself is in our words. Jesus said this also. Our words uttered in private are the best indicators of what is really going on in our hearts. Consider your speech from just this past week. What have you said to someone you love that you've regretted? What have you said to yourself, to friends, to neighbors? Think for a minute about who you've gossiped about, slandered, who you've boasted of, who you've told a half-truth to. Jesus said, by our words alone, we will be condemned. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. You're like, how is this possible that church attending people would be called murderous? The point that Paul's making is that we all have a natural reaction to get violent when people get in the way of what we want. As long as we have what we want, we're peaceable people, us church-attending Christians. But when we don't get what we want, that promotion, that recognition, that boyfriend we feel we deserve, when our kids don't get the honors in school that we feel belong to them, but instead are given to another kid. What about the solo and the Christmas concert? We don't respond with excitement for them and their family. We struggle with hating people at times, being envious, wishing harm on them. Our ears sometimes even perk up 
when the juicy stuff really comes out. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. This kind of sums it up. There is no fear of God. We don't recognize his size. We don't recognize his goodness. We don't recognize his importance. Saying there is no fear of God before their eyes means God and his authority are just not that big of a deal to us. Verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is what's most interesting. Paul says the purpose of God giving the law, giving the Bible, was not to correct sin. It was to reveal sin. Just like a mirror reveals our blemishes in the morning, the law was given to mirror, to reveal to us how sinful we are. And when we look into it, we see the shape of our heart. We see what it should be, what, we, what, what it, it currently is not. The Bible is like an x-ray. Does an x-ray reveal a problem? Yes or no? Yes, it does. Does the x-ray fix the problem? Yes or no? No, it doesn't. That's the purpose of the Bible. The Bible cannot fix us. It sweetens our behavior at times by following the rules, but it cannot change our hearts. Did you know, the, by the way, that God wants us to be naturally righteous, to just instinctively know, albeit the law, what to do. I don't need a law to tell me to eat dessert after a meal. Do you? At Thanksgiving, did you need a rule to tell you to have a slice of pumpkin pie? I didn't need one. What about my brother-in-law pointed out to me that every Thanksgiving, I take a nap. That he's noticed this is my pattern. He'll just look over and I'll be on the couch snoring. Every Thanksgiving, he says, Zach, as long as I've known you, do you think I need a rule for that? I don't need a rule to take a nap. I don't need a rule to hug Shannon. I love those things. No law is required, but the law does serve as a mirror when things get awry. I'll conclude with this thought. How, have you ever seen pigs eat? It's disgusting, isn't it? Pigs eat slop. What is slop? rotting food scraps that have been sitting in a garbage pail. And the slop is poured in and the pigs eat it every time. Provided the pigs are not starved, there's not, as I understand, ever a situation where you pour the slop in the pen with the pigs and they don't eat it. There's never that situation. They charge at the slop when the slop is served, every time. And I want you to think of God's word as the fence in between the pigs and the slop. I'm, I'm running out of illustrations, okay? Just work with me here. Paul's making this point. 
God doesn't want spiritual pigs in heaven who don't eat the slop only because there's a fence in between them and the slop. The rule. He wants spiritual pigs in heaven who have by their desire to please God the ability to ignore the slop when the slop is placed in front of them without a rule in between them and the slop. Does that make sense? To have self-control. To not have to have a rule that says you ought to obey God in this way, but rather by the prompting of the Holy Spirit to know that this is not right, even though nobody's telling me it's wrong. Paul's saying, if, if you think about sin as a bunch of actions, it's not. That's the misconception. Sin is a condition of the human heart. Religion is what teaches you to avoid actions. The gospel teaches you pay attention to the condition of your heart. Because we do things because of our hearts. The actions are only symptomatic. You're not sick because you show symptoms. You show symptoms because you're what? Because you're sick. So we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. So what we say with our mouths and do with our hands are symptoms of the rottenness in our heart. Last couple verses. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Tim Keller says this is one of the greatest transitions in all of the Bible. Right here that we just read in the book of Romans. God is going to change us, but it's not going to be by following rules. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Paul says, we're not going to be made, please understand me, Paul says, all you religious people, all you faithful church attenders, you're not going to be declared righteous by doing anything. God removes our record of sin simply by implanting new life into our hearts. And it's available to all people. And it was attested to by the law and the prophets. In other words, this is not new news. You can look back in the Old Testament and see this. And church, here's what I'll conclude with. We have to be honest about the condition of our hearts. Good works will not reform us. Billy Graham even took it this far. He said what sends most people to hell is not their sins, but their good works. In other words, nothing can keep you farther away from Jesus Christ than your delusion about your own goodness. Actually thinking that you can have enough good works of your own that can satisfy God. And Billy Graham and the Apostle Paul are saying, to come to Christ, all you need is need. That is it. All you need to come to Jesus is an admission that you need help, that you need a savior, that you cannot save yourself. Let's pray.
Father, I pray for those this morning that have a need for you in their lives. God, I pray that for those that are lonely, I pray for those who need salvation, that need your gift of grace, that have thought for years they can earn it, that are so civically minded and community minded, all of which is wonderful and good, but it does not please you. What pleases you is a contrite heart, is an admission that we're sinful and that we need a savior, that we need help. I pray, God, that would be our understanding of your word, not a religious one, but a gospel one. In Jesus' name, amen.